Hi everyone! This is your host Harmit, and you're listening to Tobin Talks. Thank you so much for tuning back into Tobin Talks. Today we'll start off by talking to history professor Essel Jones about the intersection of health and history. Then we'll focus on quite a few student resources, so I'm really excited for that. We'll be talking to University of Manitoba Director of Security about how to keep ourselves safe on campus as it gets darker outside and as we stay here later to study for final exams. We'll also be focusing on the Student Exchange Program, applications for which open December 1st, which is today if you're watching this live. So let's get started. First up, we have our Research and Tech Editor, Ella, talking to University of Manitoba History Professor Esalt Jones about her research and recent grant from the Associated Medical Services Healthcare. Okay, so um, to start off, let's start off your professional background and like your journey as a historian and what inspired you to be in the field. Well, I went back to graduate school a bit later in life than many people. I decided to return to university to do my PhD when I was in almost in my mid-30s. And I had worked for about 10 years before that doing labor and social justice work and decided to make a change and do my PhD and see where that led me. So, I, you know, I was always interested in both labor and working class history and gender history, as well as I've always been interested in health issues. When I, when I worked in the labor movement, my last job was at the Manitoba Nurses Union, where uh, I was their uh, researcher. So I, I had been sort of involved in the years before uh, going back to school in thinking about health policy. Yeah, so I became I became a historian, and then eventually I was hired into the department after I had finished my PhD and then did a, a few years of postdoctoral work. And I've been there now for, I started in 2007, so my, I think it's my 16th year there. Okay, and let's talk about your project. I believe that's investigating historian engagement in health policy. Could you tell me a bit about that? Sure. I think it arises from really my COVID pandemic experience because my early historical work was on the 1918-20 influenza pandemic. And so I have taught and researched the history of infectious disease for a number of years. And as, as a result of that, did a lot of public sort of work related to the history of pandemics and became involved in working with various scholars from various other disciplines, health sciences, but also different kinds of approaches from sociologists to cultural studies workers during COVID. And a lot of that was trying to develop changes or recommendations for changes towards changes in government policy. I, I think because of the, the time that I've spent over the last few years thinking about how we might improve health outcomes, I also write 
quite a bit on the history of Medicare. I've been working in that area for a number of years now, and I've published a couple of books related to that. So all of these things sort of came together during COVID because, you know, we've had so many challenges with both public health itself and how, how under-resourced public health is, and also with the healthcare system, which is now struggling after three years of ongoing challenges with infectious disease, with human resource issues, and so on. So, yeah, I think all of those things just really came together for me, and I, I, it's been interesting during the pandemic to see how, how much historical input has been sought out by, say, the media, for example, mm-hmm. who were very interested in learning about how societies came through infectious disease outbreaks in the past. And at the same time, you know, historians are not necessarily well represented at the table when policy discussions are happening. So I'm trying to take a broad approach toward doing work on how to contribute to that, including, you know, thinking about public discussion about government policy, not just talking to sort of high-level decision makers mm-hmm. in government, but also talking to the public about historical insights into health issues at the moment. Because I think it, it's important to to provide knowledge and support and research evidence for public perspectives that might influence government policy. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's it's always been really important for me in my career to have a bottom-up approach, I guess, to thinking about public policy, not mm-hmm. only a top-down one. So the project tries to look at all, all these various ways that historians can take advantage of opportunities to become more involved in public policy discussions, mm-hmm. both at the public level and with stakeholders too. And I'm just learning about this. It is a research project. So mm-hmm. my research assistant and I are working on developing, you know, kind of a, a bunch of literature that we're going to go through to see what best practices are. And we'll be doing that work in, in the new year. Historians have been really interested in this question. So my mm-hmm. project focuses on the history of health and disease specifically. But historians in general have been quite interested in how to increase the interaction between policy discussions and historians for, I would say, probably, I don't know, over a decade, maybe more than that. So there's actually quite a bit of stuff going on out there in the world about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of going through that stuff and thinking about it and hoping to organize some public sessions and also a conference paper in the spring of 2023. And um, what would you say is the major role that history plays in like shaping health policies? Well, I think history helps to create context for the situations that we face and to provide, you know, it's not necessarily straightforward lessons per se, because mm-hmm. the past is not the present, yeah. but rather ways of thinking critically and insights into similar incidents in the past that can maybe open, you know, some new doors to to ideas and decision making, and also reinforce some of the mistakes and the successes that that say, for example, public health has had in the past. So I I, I always try to think of it in terms of both contextualizing the conversation that we're having about where to go next with healthcare and providing and and sort of dealing with problems of historical amnesia, so that mm-hmm. there isn't 
a sense of starting from scratch on things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, using some of the skills that historians have, thinking critically about how public health and health, the healthcare system have interacted with the public in the past. So, you know, a lot of my work talks about the importance, for example, of trust between health providers and members of the public. And that's a very long-standing, that's a long-standing issue in health. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot, lots of things to draw on from the past. I think con- context and, you know, sort of learning what past insights were are, are the way, those are the ways I tend to approach it. Mm-hmm. Less than saying, we did this in the past, so therefore we should do it again in the same way. And um, what would you say is the future direction of your project? That's a really good question. So this funding is just a, it's, it's basically for um, a one-year research project with mm-hmm. um, public engagement as part of it. Where it goes after that, I'm really not quite sure. I'd like to be able to continue to do work in this area. So it, it might look like applying for some more grants to get funding for creating ongoing supports and conversation for historians who are interested, mm-hmm. uh, historians of health and disease who are interested in doing this sort of work and building a network of, of people who could support each other in doing that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking about providing toolkits, for example, for people who are interested in having that kind of dialogue both for policymakers but also for historians. And I wouldn't be I wouldn't be reinventing the wheel there either. I think there are lots of examples for me to draw on and you know, to continue continue the conversation in an organic kind of way. I mean it's it's hard to say how it will evolve over the next few years. But it is an issue I care a lot about. So I'm gonna to try to find a way to build it into all the projects that I'm working on. Okay, thank you. Could you tell me a bit about your online project, Pandemic Histories, what that is all about? Sure, yeah. That project was um, partly funded by the Humanities Research Professorship that I've held for the last couple of years. And it's serving a few functions for me right now. Every now and then, we post commentaries from either historians or written by myself. Or also, I've been um, working with students in my classes the last few years on on writing blog posts and other kind of public-facing sorts of pieces in disease history. And I post. Uh, I've been posting some of those as well, which is really fun and exciting to do. The site includes kind of a. a, a a database or a list of, of projects in Canada that have been archiving uh, community-level COVID experiences. And I've been keeping that list. It started off with the help of Joe McCutcheon from the Association of Canadian Archivists, and I've been trying to update that list periodically so that if, if people are interested in what what collecting of records or memories or oral histories or other sorts of things have been going on across the country mm-hmm. so that we can remember COVID. There's some interesting resources there. And then in the, next, in the last few months, I've been teaching with um, about 10 other scholars from U- University of Manitoba. We've been running a pilot free um, public course called Pandemics Past and Present. Mm-hmm. And the website is also kind of a home for that course as well now. Uh, earlier on in the fall, we took registrations for that course and we run classes every two weeks. Mm-hmm. So we're just coming now to the end of the first term. 
and then um, we'll start up again in the new year. So the host, uh, the site's been a really useful tool for hosting that course as well. Most of it is behind a password protected part of the page, but for any, the, the course is free and open to members of the public, to students, to other faculty members, to anyone really. Uh, we have a few active public health practitioners who are in the course too. And once you're registered in the course, we allow people access to the materials on the website. Yeah, that's been a really fun project for me, evolving and, and ongoing. And um, I hope to be able to uh, continue to enrich that website over the next while. Yeah. Now we have news reporter Ashley focusing on the Student Exchange Program. Applications for this program open on December 1st, and you can find out more information by contacting the International Centre. Ashley will be interviewing Chimdinma Chijioki, a fourth-year political studies student who went to Hungary for three weeks. And could you tell me a little bit about that experience? Like, where'd you go? How did you get involved? Like, the process, stuff like that. How long were you there? What did you do there? So I went on exchange to Europe, um, specifically Hungary, for the for the Hungarian 2100 um, course. I believe it was called Hungarian Culture, History, and Language. It was kind of like a short um, immersion program over the span of three weeks. It was a six-credit course. It was a small class size with all the students from U of M, but the experience was tailored to our U of M like course um, grading translation. So that was like easier on my end to understand how the assignments were gonna go and how the grades were gonna translate. The courses were really interesting to learn about, like Hungarian history. Like we learned a bit of Hungarian language. We tried some of the foods. We tried some traditional crafts and like outfits. We also got to go on to many tours, um, visited lots of um, significant places in Hungary. I would like to say the International Center really helped a lot. There were lots of like pre-departure sessions to give us more information on how to be prepared and let us know how um, U of M was able to help us like with resources at Hungary and even before we left. Cool, perfect. And then what would you say are the benefits of going on an exchange program? Um, for me, going on an exchange was really special because I'd always wanted to go on exchange but due to COVID I wasn't able to go but it gave me a chance to like experience another country culture learn about it and then get greater for it like I told my friends like jokingly like I was a tourist for a couple of weeks and then that was my entire class that has to be like one of the best classes I've taken at U of M because we just got to explore see beautiful architecture and things like that going on exchange was really special and I'm glad that I had that opportunity through you of them. And then would you do it again if you had the opportunity? Definitely, I would. And would you recommend this program to other students? Yes, I would. 
talk to the international center, find out what opportunities they have, because sometimes your GPA has to be up to a certain percent. So just like talk to them and let them know you're interested in going on exchange so you can, they can work with you to um, determine the requirements you need to meet for either the country or the university you're interested in. And just keep checking in with them and like school advisors to make sure that your grades are on track and that they're courses in the exchange universities that you can take that will count towards your degree. Um, and then how did you get involved with the program? I saw some information on, I believe, Instagram and the U of M website. And one of my profs from my from the winter semester told me about the program because they were kind of the co-coordinators between the U of M and the university in Hungary. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview with me today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Have a good day. You too, bye. Yeah, bye. All right, up next, we have our news editor, Matthew, talking to the University of Manitoba Director of Security, Gordon Perrier, about safety resources available on campus, including the UM Safe app. Why is exam season potentially a dangerous time for students and faculty that are kind of just around the university? I think that everybody uh, all the time should be fairly vigilant of their surroundings. I think exam time, uh, I think people are distracted in a lot of ways. And, and distracted in a good way because they're focusing on exams, they're focusing on the culmination of their courses. And when you're that focused, sometimes you just need to be reminded right like it's 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 the simple analogy of if you're looking at your phone and you're really in that conversation uh and you're texting away and then you walk into a poll i think we've all walked into something while we're looking at our phone yeah. and it's a little bit of a shake up to go oh goodness so it's just like that analogy but simply to say like at, at night or during exam time especially just a good reminder to say hey remember all the safety uh, provisions that Sometimes we all do automatically, like everybody has very good instincts, um, but when you are distracted, people aren't so good at multitasking sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's just a good reminder. Cool. What is the U of M security doing to protect, I guess, like during this time? So the, the university has uh, a number of different layers or services or programs that are available to students and staff. They're available uh, all year long, 24 hours a day. Uh, including uh, when the university officially shuts down. Security has uh, the, the same number of people here during all of those uh, time periods, and all the programs that we offer are available uh, during that time period. So we always have a service capability that we offer to anybody that calls. So we have a non-emergency number that you can call or 749312 or activate using pound triple uh, five on some carriers, most carriers except TELUS. Yeah. Um, and, and then we have an in-person service. Uh, that also works with our emergency touch point centers, whether they're, they're red panels or the blue poles or, you know, through telephone or our, uh, our the safety app that's uh, um, branded by the university. So, 
In addition to those, we do safe walk. Usually we do safe ride. Uh, I think with uh, once masking changes here, safe ride will come back as well. Uh, in addition to, we do a lot of safety lectures. We do a lot of uh, programming relative to personal safety and then work in conjunction with the operations and maintenance branch and a number of branches across uh, the university to provide either support or even infrastructure improvements uh, relative to safety and using the university. Cool. So what are what are like safe zones specifically? I know you talked about like there's certain areas, like what are those areas? So when we talk about uh, areas that we have focused on, I think uh, in terms of safety that have presented in the past or either by students or staff or events, people have said, look, is safety increased in those areas? So we know that come wintertime, nah, and if it's a nasty day, people want to be in the tunnel system. And tunnel traffic is, you know, during much of the day, there's lots of people around. Uh, when there's lots of people around, there's some natural security that's provided by that. Uh, everybody steps in when need be. I think there's a lot of shared community here where people say, hey, that's not right, or are willing to do that. When those times are different, that's, you know, that 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 uh, dwindles a little bit. So all of the tunnel system at the at campus uh, downtown and a lot of the pathways at the Banatine campus that are used there regularly are all covered by CCTV. Uh, they are monitored. Um, but we also have scheduled patrols. So all the uh, the physical uh, or the guard program here, there's touch points all over the university. We make sure that uh, patrols go through those areas. They account for those patrols by touching those touch points uh, with a device that they have or, or by proximity. Um, and then we know that those patrols actually occurred. Uh, we run roughly 500,000 to 750,000 touch points a year uh, or assurance patrols for personal safety, but also to protect, you know, the, the property infrastructure of the university. So those two items, I think, are things that people like to talk about a lot uh, in, in terms of safety. Um, in the most emergent situation, we do have the ability for anyone that signs up to the UM Safe app to get a uh, instant message on their phone to say, hey, look, this is what's going on on the university, whether that's, a, uh, you say, a criminal event emergency, whether it's a weather emergency uh, or some other type of emergency, we can send that out to their, their phone. But we also have a broadcast system on the university. I think every Wednesday at one o'clock, people hear those chimes. And if yeah. you're new to campus, you go, what the heck is that? <laughs> um, but it's pretty loud. And I think yeah. the people five kilometers away from campus to hear it, but we try to, uh, uh, you know, um, be respectful to to, to their uh, their you know peace and comfort in their homes as well, and only run that on on Wednesdays at one o'clock. But that's also there that if we get in that emergent situation where we need to give direction, for instance, like you know secure your location, there's an active criminal event, you know, and wait for the instructions that we have the ability to do that. The UM Safe app is brilliant. I, I came to the university about a year and a half ago, and it started about just around two years ago. If you dig into that, mm -hmm. it has a lot of interactive features and true safety. You can touch one button on there, and it will tell security where you are um, and map it. And if even if you move, we know where you are, mm -hmm. and then we can come and meet you and provide you assistance. Yeah. If you haven't activated that, 
we do not know where you are. So yeah. this, this, this is only, Hey, I need this type of help yeah. and it will be activated. But it also has other functions that you can involve your friends. You can involve your family. You can involve a, a computer through app armor to say, Hey, increase my security for my friend network. And you don't need to involve security at all. Hmm. So there may be some people that are reluctant to perhaps engage with security. That's fine. We just want to have an avenue that you can increase your own personal safety uh, when you're moving about on campus. I highly encourage people to check it out, but more importantly, download it and and have it available in case you need it. It is a uh, really, really, really good system. The friend walk, for instance, if you call me and say, I'm leaving to full library, and you activate it and say your girlfriend's waiting for you uh, or, your, or your partner's waiting for you in another part of the university, they can look on their app and they can see you. They can see your footprints and getting closer and closer to them. Just like your skip the dishes is we're all <laughs> wanting to know when it's going to get to our door. Yeah. Um, this is the same thing. Um, so it, it provides a lot of comfort for people. Yeah. And I, I, I know that we have, we're coming up on 5,000 subscribers. Oh. But if we look at our population here, mm-hmm. We have a little ways to go. It is a, it's a, it's a great little tool when you need it. Yeah, I know a lot of people that would really like to use that. They're always, how do I get a hold of security? And like the other thing that I'll send you that I think it's on the same web page, but sometimes it's harder to find. Yeah. It is called a quick reference guide, and it's everything to do with safety from 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 uh, weather to personal safety to crisis situations and what does the university look like or do in terms of emergency so i'll send you those three things yeah outside of the app what are some like strategies students can use like while walking around campus i think uh i think we're all guilty of it i know i'm guilty of it as well is i have to purposely sometimes go okay i'm walking from here to here i need to put my phone down and let's just you know, take in the environment and therefore I can see what's going on, especially in parking lots. Campus here is 700 acres. Mm-hmm. It is a huge place. It is a small city. And while there's lots of layers here in terms of protection and response, and really from only a, from a statistical point of view, crime events or even policy violations are pretty small. But that doesn't mean that they don't occur. And it doesn't mean that every sort of criminal event that we could think of you know, has occurred on campus, right? So I think being aware of your surroundings, you know, taking that little moment to say in these situations, I'm going to be especially uh, vigilant. And I, I do think people's instincts themselves are the most. If something feels uncomfortable, looks uncomfortable, like I'm a real big believer in 90% of the time, your instincts are correct. And calling us, no one should hesitate. Just call us. Even if it's like, yeah, call us. Something feels wrong. I'm in the parking lot here or it looks suspicious. We're happy to come. There's no judgment in those in those types of contacts or phone calls. And we know, and I do drill into staff when I when I speak with them, that people's intuition is is so often correct that you don't get there. Um, and that's what's important. Cool. Okay. Any recommendations for like studying off campus? I think campus is a great place to study, you know, but even that UM app, so the friend walk that shows where you are, Mm -hmm. it works in in the province of Manitoba. Okay. So you can use that feature or set up those features for working alone off campus as well. 
the mapping or emergency functions. They only occur if you're within the geofence. Okay. But there are some applications, some processes within that UM Safe app that actually work off campus uh, as well mm-hmm. or anywhere in the province. So uh, if you tour that, you can figure out how those those things uh, work as well. But you know what? When you're studying, setting you know time limits to study, then to check in or take a break. As much as that's good for studying, that's also good for personal security as well. Mm-hmm. So those are those are my big uh, high level. Uh, sort of recommendations. Everyone wants to find the perfect studying place on campus, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, secluded, uh, by itself, but that may not always be the best case either as well. I think the university has been pretty good at trying to find pace, places or set up places that are conducive to studying, but still offer things like privacy in that immediate area, you know, take, take into account uh, noise and managing noise providing good light so people don't get too fatigued, yeah. uh, but at the same time, you know, incorporating the security features of the university, whether that's CCTV on patrol areas or even, uh, you know, libraries are great space. Uh, librarians, the staff that works there, they have ambassador staff as well. All of them have a, a sort of a heightened uh, security awareness all the time, and they are radio connected to us as well and uh, uh, get a hold of us quickly should there be an issue or something develop. Just a reminder that if you ever have any suggestions or feedback for people who you'd like to see on the podcast, if you'd like to be on the podcast, if you want to send in any of your poetry, short stories, any of those types of things, please email me at audio at themanitoban.com. You can find Tobin Talks Thursdays at 1130 on 101.5 FM radio, which is UMFM radio, and you can listen to us anytime on all of your podcast streaming services, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's it for today, and we'll see you on the next episode of Tobin Talks.